Did you ever wonder how big wave surfers or magicians or prostitutes or soldiers manage risk in their lives? Yeah, me either. But luckily, economist and author Dr. Allison Schrager did, and she wrote a book about it called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. She joins us on Your Money, Your Wealth today to explain how the risk management techniques of these very risky professionals might relate to our own investing and retirement planning. Plus, does it matter which assets you withdraw first from your retirement portfolio. Stick around to find out why it's less about stocks versus bonds and more about your tax bracket, your asset allocation, and your asset location. And just how much can you convert to a Roth IRA without incurring the 3.8% Medicare surcharge? The fellas will talk that one out too. I'm producer Andy Last, and here with our guest, Dr. Allison Schrager, are the hosts of YMYW, Joe Anderson CFP, and Big Al Clopine CPA. Allison, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Hey, let's start here. Why did you write the book and how did you come up with the title? Well, for a book about, it's not all about brothels, but for a book that <laughs> opens in a brothel, you'd probably be surprised it was actually largely inspired by my work with financial planners. And I found that, you know, financial planners, you work in risk, you manage risk. Uh, my background as an economist is studying retirement finance. Is It's like this very, like the life cycle problem, like moving money throughout your lifetime and managing money over your lifetime is this very sort of classic basic risk problem and a very difficult one. I think personal finance sort of gets a bad rap and people think it's simple. A lot of personal finance books say it's simple, but it's actually even Bill Sharp says one of the hardest problems out there. And I found while a lot of financial planners understood risk, explaining it to their clients always was a struggle in terms they could understand and internalize. You know, they'd have a client in, they'd give them a quiz, they'd decide they're risk averse, and then they'd put them in relatively safe assets and then the stock market would go up and they'd say, well, my friend, advisor has them in triple levered beta funds. Why aren't you beating them? And it's like, because you said you were risk averse. So I felt like based on my time with planners that they needed better tools to explain risk to people. And I have a background as a journalist and in storytelling. And I just, I guess, like adventure. So I figured I really wanted to write a book that could explain these basic concepts of risk, especially around the risk around the life cycle problem in terms people could understand and enjoy. And so that brought me to a brothel. <laughs> of course, that's my first bet. <laughs> right? Well, why not? There's a lot of risk there by all that's, parties. That's, that's what I figured. <laughs> but, but you're so right. People fill out a, a risk questionnaire and it's all based on, I believe, you know, what their emotions are maybe on that given day or what the environment looks like in maybe that the, the given month or the given quarter. And so they fill it out, but it really has nothing to do with what they should be doing. You know, of course, you have to take a look at, you know, their ability to take risk, but how much risk should they be taking and how much do they need, I think is a little bit more important to help people figure this stuff out. Yeah, and I think that's an important role that financial planners play. I mean, this book is different in a lot of ways. I think, you know, it's not really technically a personal finance book because it's more storytelling. But I think a lot of personal finance books almost suggest you can do this yourself. And I think risk management is hard. And that's one of the huge value adds of financial planning is you need that counselor to determine how much risk is appropriate and help with risk management because it's too hard to do it on your own. So, I think even if you're a professional. So you interviewed a bunch of interesting people, people that kind of would we would think are taking risky careers or doing risky things like prostitutes, like gamblers, like magicians. 
Big wave surfers. I think that's a really interesting one. Laird Hamilton riding these 50-foot waves or, or bigger. What were some of your takeaways from talking to some of these people? Well, I think, which is what I suspected going in, risk is so much beyond just financial markets. They're everywhere. And it was surprising to me how people where you least expect it are using some really interesting and sophisticated strategies. Like when I went to Hawaii to meet with the big wave surfers, it was because they have an annual risk conference where they discuss various hedging and insurance strategies and systemic risk. And they have a very interesting debate about it because that's really what's tearing their community apart right now is debating personal responsibility around risk. And that's the thing. I think everyone has the capacity to really understand risk and make good risk decisions. It's just really about framing so people can understand it in all areas of their life. When you look at the principles that you talked about in your book to assess risk, what should people be thinking about? And I think you do a very good job of kind of relating different stories of how different industries or different professionals um, assess risk. But how do we bring that back to, all right, I want to retire. I have to get in the financial markets. I hear the word risk, but I, I really don't understand how much risk that I should be taking on. How can you use some of your analogies to help our listeners to figure out what they should be doing, I guess, in, in regards to their capital assets? Well, I think when it comes to retirement or any problem in any industry, I found people were the most successful when they really had a well-defined goal of what they were taking and thought about what they meant even by risk-free. I think risk-free asset is the foundation of all financial modeling and all financial decisions, but you need to define it properly in terms of your goal. So like for retirement, I think where a lot of people get confused and don't know how much risk to take is we define the retirement problem in wealth. It's always like, how much money do I need to retire with? Is it a million dollars, is it $2 million, whatever? But really you're, you're saving and investing for income. Like it might be $50,000 a year. And that's a completely different goal. If $50,000 a year for you know 30 years, the rest of your life is a very different goal than a million dollars on day one of retirement. And it also requires a completely different strategy and a completely different definition of what we mean by safe asset. Like a, a T-bill does not is not a good hedge for a regular stream of income 20, 30, even 10 years from now. And I found no matter what you're doing, whether or not you're a surfer or an investor, that's so important. Like I think surfers also realize this and that, you know, Laird Hamilton always would say when I first looked at the community, I wasn't sure it would work for my book because he would just say, if the wave is there, I have to ride it. And I'm like, well, that's not good risk management. <laughs> right. But when I actually met this community of surfers, you know, the big wave risk assessment group, you know, they don't think that way. They think is what is the best wave for me to surf given the risks? You know, for instance, like they take a very common hedge, which is waves travel in packs of five. And often the bigger waves are in the beginning of the pack, but you would never surf that wave because then you'll have four or five large waves barreling on you. And that's really dangerous if you wipe out. So they might take a smaller wave, a less perfect, pure wave, because it's later in the set and because it's safer. Like they make that trade off of how can I get that rush of riding a big wave, but also not take any more risk than I have to take. So there's always a trade off, I guess. It's, it's looking I could take the bigger wave or uh, that's in front, 
but then I could get crushed. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I, I will get crushed <laughs> because I because I'm getting off this wave at some point. Yes. Or you just kind of wait a little bit. It might be a smaller, might be not as perfect, but you know, there's no other waves coming behind. Yeah. Uh, explain the difference. You know, you say hedge. What I mean, what is a hedge? And then and then can you explain the difference to that of of insurance? So if I'm let's say constructing a portfolio, there's hedges there, or I can insure it. So can can you briefly talk a little bit about the both uh, both of those? Yeah. So um, a hedge is effectively just taking less risk. So in finance, it is if you have a risky portfolio, say like a stock index fund or whatever, and you hedge by investing a little bit in a safe asset, say you know short term or long term bonds, depending on your time horizon. So you know the hedge is deciding how much you're going to go into the safer asset, and what it means is you give up upside. Like the stock market goes up. Uh, 100%, you're going to get less of that because you were in bonds, but you also reduce the risk of the stock market crashing. As opposed to insurance is you sell some, you you buy protection. So it's someone, you give someone money, effectively what they're doing is taking on your downside risk, but you technically keep all that upside less whatever the premium is. I think people confuse the two, and they often also confuse the difference between diversification and hedging. Because hedging is in a way, diversification because you're going into a different asset, but you that assumes you already are in this like nice combination of risky assets to begin with that is diversified. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I guess with insurance, I'm, I I could take on the full brunt of it, but I'm losing because I have to pay someone else to to cover my my downside. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, though, all the less that premium, all the upside is yours. Right. Like. So, I mean, it's like if you, you said if you insure on a stock, you know, whatever upside, if that stock goes sky high, you still get all that upside as opposed to with a hedge, you have to always give up that, a whole fraction of that upside. With prostitutes to surfers to magicians, what, what was the most interesting? I mean, I mean, all of this stuff is absolutely <laughs> interesting. But we're, I mean, did some go, what the hell? I mean, this is uh, – t- tell me about the whole process of, of making this book. He mainly wants to know about the brothel. Oh, whatever. <laughs> no, I actually want to learn about the magician. That's what I wanted to be as a kid. You know, you know, one of the reasons I did a magician was um, because Robert Merton, who taught me finance, the guy who won the Nobel Prize for Black Shoal, his he comes oh, from just a, Robert Merton. Yeah, that's, just that's all. Yeah, my you know, hanging, good, hanging good friend out. that C- uh, won a Nobel Prize. Yeah. Uh, besides that, go. <laughs> <laughs> well, his fa- his father was a famous academic too, uh, but that was only because a career in magic didn't work out. He was going to be a professional magician. But that didn't work out for him, so he became a famous sociologist. And magic is incredibly important to the Merton family. So that was partially why I wrote about a magician for insurance. But generally, I think you get the sense. I mean, the process of writing the book was just pure fun. I, I got to say, I enjoyed every minute because I got to meet all these amazing people and learn all these interesting things. Like, you would never think a brothel in a lot of ways is just like any other workplace. I mean, it's it is like all one big hedge in that you give up so much money of your earnings to work in a brothel, but you get all this safety, including all the annoying bits of like working in an office, like the politics between the sex workers or like anything you'd see. They have financial planners. They've got financial literacy. They've got staff meetings and like all the structure and politics of any workplace. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's um, what well, that was the bunny ranch. Um, yeah, Nevada. Yeah, where yeah, it's a TV show or something. Oh, you! I have no idea. 
<laughs> it was uh, it was on HBO. It was oh. a special. Got it. It it was, and like they don't even the mundane parts are sometimes the most interesting. Like there was a woman who, whenever I'm there, who'd always pull me aside. And always complain. She'd always be like, you know, Alice makes so much more money than I am. And like, no one values me here. And she would like then give me her sex resume. Like, <laughs> in the way, like, some of the workplace would be like, they don't pay me enough anyway. I went to Harvard. It's like, she actually gave me, like, she started listing all these obscene things she'd done with these people I'd never heard of. <laughs> and I would always just be like, you know, you should advertise that more. And us women don't really trumpet our accomplishments enough. Because I just never knew quite what to say to that. Um, <laughs> But I'm like, wow, there is one in every workplace. That one person who feels like they're not valued for their skills. <laughs> I can just imagine at the end of every day you're trying to take all these interviews from the, the people of the brothel and just try to make sense of it. Well, it's also interesting to realize that you can actually go into sex work and you still have to do your Tuesday afternoon meeting. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. right? you got to get that staff meeting involved. You do, right? right? right. What's your numbers? How, how are you performing here? That's exactly what they discuss. I mean, I said the the, the most, one of the sometimes the most interesting thing about the brothel was just what a normal workplace it was. Except everyone's in their underwear. Obviously, that was different. <laughs> but otherwise, it was really just like any other workplace. So one one of the principles you found is that uh, we're irrational beings, and and I guess the more that we know that, the the better the outcome or the better the risk taking can be. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I kind of reject the idea that we're just hopeless and can't understand risk. <laughs> anyway, a lot of people say that. I think, it, I, you know, the research says it really comes down a lot to framing and how you think about risk. And people can really overcome these biases with more experience and more education and depending on how you frame problems. Yeah, <laughs> without question. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all about framing, um, you, know, you know, some degree. So with... Um, <clears throat> I want to get. I'm just stuck on the old magician. Okay, back to that. <laughs> so, how did. So, explain to me, and I don't want to give too much of the book away. I don't want to just, you know, go through chapter by chapter and you know, explain it to our lit because we got to get them to buy the book, right, Andy? Yeah. That's the whole point. Absolutely. This yes. That's the whole point Allison of this. com. Go get <laughs> your copy of the book. <laughs> Andy does a really good job of selling it. Maybe you want to say that another. <laughs> Go to AllisonSchrager.com and get yourself a copy of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk by Allison Schrager. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So with the magician, how, tell me about um, how you explain insurance with that. Well, I mean, performance, and I actually just spoke to a comedian who said this, he did something similar to what she does, is a very risky thing, right? You're putting yourself out there, and, you know, you realize magicians, so, I mean, every, I, mean, I guess you always knew this, everything they do is a con, right? Like, we, you go in, and they manage to completely make you feel trusting and safe, and then they trick you. And so, if a trick goes wrong, it's shattered, and the whole show just goes to hell. So, you know, people are always interested in seeing magicians' tricks, like how they did it. And I honestly find that less interesting because usually there's such technical skill involved, I can't even appreciate it. But I think what's more interesting, what magicians really won't tell you, is how they save tricks when they go wrong. Like they have all these little, like insurance is technically, right, anything that gives you a payoff in a certain state of the world. And so they have all this, in case this goes wrong, backup plans. It could be... Things like, oh, oh, they can't find the card and they start panicking. But they don't panic. They say, here's the deck. You know, just check and make sure your card is still in there. 
And <laughs> until they you know, find it. Yeah, right. <laughs> it sounds like such an obvious thing, but because there's all this buildup, they invest so much throughout the act that you feel comfortable with them that they um, you know, they can get away with that. It's interesting. I just saw Belinda, the magician I profile. She invited me back to her show and I gave her a book. And, you know, to get people to be in these chapters, you know, it's like a journalist trick is you have to make someone feel trusting and like you're going to do a good job telling their life story that they have no control over and then putting it out publicly. And I was surprised when I left. I was like, you know, thanks, Belinda. Thanks so much for letting me include you in your story. And she just looked at me and she goes, takes one to know one. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, are, are you getting pulled over, by yeah, the way? Yeah, uh, sirens <laughs> in the background. <laughs> are, you, are you speeding there? Uh, uh, oh, can you hear? I think I'm, it's New York traffic. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I've got a question for you. I think, and I, I, I feel like I'm a bit of a planner, hence I'm in the financial planning field, so fortunate thing. CPA by, by nature, uh, by profession and by nature, I guess. But it seems like the absolute best plans, there's things that you can't possibly plan for. There's uncertainty. And so, and I know you talk about that in the, in the book, but for our listeners, how should people deal with uncertainties or things that happened that were just, they couldn't really anticipate? Well, I mean, that's where you need flexibility because I think planning is important. Like, I know other people are very critical of financial models and planning because plans always shall fall short. I mean, what we're doing is we're taking stabs at the dark and trying to predict what's going to happen in the future. And we try to think of everything that could happen and how likely it is. But, you know, we're never, there's always going to be things we don't anticipate. So, I mean, and, and that can be a shortcoming of risk models and that if you think you've planned for everything and then you haven't and you're counting on it, then it's a problem. Like I was watching Billions the other day and they said, you know, well, we're going to lever up and then we're going to protect our downside risk. And I'm like, that is a bad idea. Um, <laughs> because if you lever up, I mean, that is because like what you need to deal with uncertainty with the unexpected is, is flexibility, right? Like you need to have that ability to pivot and change your plan if you need to. And I, for that chapter, I interviewed H.R. McMaster, who, you know, is this general, because the military loves to plan everything down to the wire. But then battle inherently always goes differently than they expect. So this always tension in the military is how much can we plan in advance and how much flexibility are we going to leave our soldiers in to, like, change things up on the fly, which no one likes but is also really necessary. So when, like, in billions, when they're like, we're going to lever up and protect our downside risk, I'm like, well, you're protecting the downside risk for the things you can't imagine. But this is where hedge funds or any financial firm gets into troubles when they lever up and then think they're covered. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with leverage. Sometimes it works. But what you got to do is leave enough flexibility in there where if something happens, you don't expect that you can still make that pivot. And that's why debt is potentially so risky is it ruins your flexibility. Hence, you know, the credit crisis. Yes. Right. Real estate loans, credit crisis. Yeah, everything. Little leverage there. Yep, uh, Allison. Thank you so much for taking the time. This was um, awesome. It was a lot of fun. Um, I, I I really really appreciate it. So, um, where can they find the book, Andy? They can go to AllisonSchrager.com. That's S C H R A G E R. AllisonSchrager.com to get a copy of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. You also write a great blog. Where can they find you there? Oh, thanks. No, I have a newsletter, and you can sign up for it on my website. And I also write for courts.qz.com. Uh, so I'm everywhere. Something um, millennials are not having enough sex, and that's why there's 
That's at QZ.com. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, it is. It's a high-risk free rate of return because, you know, Netflix is just so good. There's no reason to go outside. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Netflix is really good, actually. <laughs> and you're single, so you would know. AllisonSchrager.com <laughs> is the website. Allison Schrager, thank you so much for joining us. Check out the podcast show notes at YourMoneyYourWealth.com to read the transcript of this interview, to share it far and wide via social media and email, to subscribe to Your Money, Your Wealth for free access to all future and past interviews, and for links to Allison Schrager's website and her book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. YourMoneyYourWealth.com is also the place where you scroll down to the bottom of the page, click the Ask Joe and Al on air button, and send the fellows a voice recording or an email right through the site, and they'll answer your question right here on YMYW. And I might even post a video of their response, just like I did for this first one. Check it out in the podcast show notes at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. Rich from Chicago. Hi, Joe and Big Al. Love the show. Thanks, Rich. Have a question on spending my retirement funds. As long as I rebalance when needed, doesn't matter if I take from stocks or bonds. Or should I only sell what's high to keep my allocation where I want it? I've also read that you should only sell bonds and then rebalance when needed. Not sure what the best way is. Uh, thanks, guy. guys. <clears throat> Rich, that's one of the most intelligent questions I think we have ever received on Your Money, Your Wealth. Would you say so, Alan? It's, it's one of them. It, it's a good question. Because everyone is faced with this, and, and hardly anyone would even think about it. Right. I mean, it's like, okay, well, here, I want to spend $30,000 you know, a year from my portfolio, I'm going to put in, in cash and then go from there, you know? Right. Uh, so multiple ways to look at this, Rich. Really depends on, A, how much money that you have, where you're pulling the money from, and what other income sources that you have, and your tax bracket. So let's break this down. Because it's not as simple as do I buy, you know, should I sell bonds, should I sell stocks, or a certain asset class is higher, so should I sell that one? A certain asset class is lower. you know. So there's a lot of moving parts that are going on with this overall question. So I think which would make sense is that just to kind of give a high-level um, outlook of what you need to be thinking about as you start taking dollars from your portfolio. Okay, good. Okay? First things first is to see, all right, well, how much money does Rich have or how much money should Rich have? Okay, so that's kind of the first part of the equation. So if you're looking at retiring here soon, Rich, here's the math that you would want to look at: is figure out hey, what are you spending, right? What's your goal? How much money that that you want to spend entirely? Let's say you know this year and then thereafter for life expectancy. So let's just assume it's a hundred thousand dollars a year. All right, you with me so far? Sure. Second step is to figure out what other income sources are going to come to the household that is not part of your portfolio. Okay. So that could be real estate income, that could be social security income, that could be pension income, right? Um, or maybe part-time work income or whatever. Everything but don't count dividends or interest or anything like that from the portfolio. Just look at what your fixed income sources are going to be. So let's say 50,000 or $100,000 is what he wants to spend. His pension, social security is 50 grand. So that reaches his shortfall of 50. So the rule of thumb, Al, would be what? 
Well, you take the $50,000 shortfall and you multiply it by 25 to give you an approximate amount that you need to have saved, which in that example would be $1,250,000. Okay. So he needs about $1.2 million bucks to Correct. create that income. That's so right. that's kind of his first step, right? Yep. So that's assuming, all right, that you're pulling 4% out of the portfolio, that the portfolio is growing 6 the other 2 helps with inflation and taxes. Sure. The second step of all of the, all right, so that's kind of your first step. Do I have enough? Then the second step is really to take inventory to see where's your dollars at. Are they in a retirement account? Are they outside of a retirement account? Are they in a Roth account? Right. So just start taking inventory to say, well, what percentage do you have that million to in each of these different accounts? Because if let's say if he had a third, a third, a third in retirement accounts, Roth accounts, and non-retirement accounts, I mean, that would be ideal. It would. Uh, but the likelihood of that happening is probably low. We don't see it very often. Very, very, very seldom. I would say 90% is probably in a retirement account, 10% in Roth and other. Right. So you might want to start looking at diversifying your overall situation, getting a little bit more money into Roth, maybe looking at, all right, well, if I have a fixed income, what's my RMD is going to look like? How, you know, So just kind of really getting the hands on tax. Because if you can save money in tax, that's going to have a direct correlation on your overall asset allocation, which I'm coming full circle to your point. Because if I have a lot more and if I can save more money in tax, then I can take less risk, right? Sure. So I, I will have more bonds, more cash, more fixed income type investments in the overall portfolio because I don't necessarily need to shoot for a higher rate of return. So said another way, so if, if he needs $50,000 in, in your example, um, and if he's got more money in a Roth IRA or outside of a retirement account, it's more tax favored. And so to get that $50,000, it's, it's, there's going to be more tax efficient. And so you don't have to take as much risk in your portfolio to earn that same money. Absolutely, right? Because Roth money's all yours. A tax deferred, I mean, maybe only a third of that is, or, or two thirds is yours. Right. Where a third might have to go to the IRS. So looking at the tax implications of everything is going to determine how you should be allocated because how we believe is that you want to take the least amount of risk possible to accomplish the goal. So if I'm shooting for 6%, 5%, 4 let's just take the least amount of risk to try to get that target rate of return. Then how you're going to be pulling your income is going to determine on your tax bracket, right, of where you're going to be pulling the funds from. So if I'm looking at I need to pull $50,000 from the overall portfolio, well, I might want to only pull, let's say, $30,000 of the 50 from my tax-deferred account. That might get me to the top of, let's say, the 12% tax bracket. The other dollars would want to come from the other two pools, right? So I could potentially pay zero tax on those dollars, remain in the 12% tax bracket, instead of paying 22% tax. Right. So before you even get to selling stocks versus bonds, you're looking at which tax pool to pull money from. And, and the, the key there, as you said, Joe, is to manage your tax brackets, to stay in as low a bracket as possible. And then from there, as you're looking at the different pools, that's, of course, is when you want to start looking at, all right, well, which asset class is up? Which asset class is down? And then, yes, you would want to sell the asset class that is up to create that income. Some people will look at creating, you know, taking dividends and putting it into cash and then spending that. You might want to put a year's worth of income just in cash and keep it easy. But yeah, I, I think you got the right point. But then trying to tax manage it, rebalancing it, and then keeping your tax pools in check, that's where it gets a lot more complicated. Different tax pools, and so that determines where what kind of investments go where. 
if you have money in a Roth IRA, well, that's tax-free. So you want your asset classes that have the highest expected rates of return. And those tend to be smaller companies, U.S. value companies, same internationally, maybe emerging market uh, type stocks. Now, they're more volatile, yes, but over the long term, they tend to, to do a little bit better than the larger company stocks, which then, you know, you would put those probably in your, in your non-retirement account. Your safest assets, your fixed income, uh, you might want to put in your IRA because the fixed income produces ordinary income interest, which, by the way, that's what a retirement account does, and you don't want your highest growth in the retirement account because you just end up paying more taxes. So, so you gotta you got to think about that. Or if you have like tax-inefficient type investing, right? If you have a lot of turnover, let's say, in a mutual fund uh, that, that's highly active, or maybe you're day trading or something like that and doing well, maybe you do that in your retirement account. Just because those short-term profits, if you're successful, is taxed at ordinary income, you can defer that tax by just doing it in the retirement account versus right. outside. Right. Good um, point. In REITs, also, it's kind of a quasi-investment where sometimes you get highly appreciation in REITs, but it also kicks out really terrible um, tax yeah, income. It, so you might want to put that into a, maybe a Roth as well. So yeah. you know, different different things that you want to look at. And as you boil this thing down, it, it can really make a huge difference. Yeah, and so the I guess the way that we kind of think about it is is after you've got the right assets in the right type of tax pools, then you tend to look at everything as if it were a single account to try to determine, am I, are we still in balance here? In other words, if I want to have 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds, the market's going to move. And, and at some points, you're going to have higher than 60% in stocks, some points maybe less. And so the, there's different schools of thought on, on how you create, how you take money out of the portfolio for income. My, my belief is to try to reduce trading costs is every time that you need to take money out, that you're going to have a rebalancing opportunity. So you take the money out of the, of the, the account, or I should say the asset class, that is, is higher than it should be. Let's say you want 10% in large company stocks, and now it's 11%, and you need some dollars. Well, it would be obvious to sell 1% of those large company stocks, and that's what you take your distribution, and then you, you basically rebalanced and created distributions at the same time. The problem with that in a bubble is if those uh, if those assets are in your retirement account and you've got a lot of uh, uh, different assets outside of your retirement account and you're already in a high tax bracket, you may want to rethink that. So there's there's a whole bunch of things that you got to look at it at one time. Right, and it's so it's it's going to boil down to the planning that you you look at up front. Is that <clears throat> okay? We're in now May. Can you believe it's May? Yes. Mid-May, even. Right. All right. So t- next month, we're halfway through the year. Right. So as you get closer to, let's say, maybe October, okay, you're going to have a little family summit like the Clopines do. <laughs> That's right. Right? We usually have ours in January. Okay. For kind of plan for the year. Well, when you retire, you'll probably have it in October, just to plan for the following year, just a couple of months in advance. Yeah. Well, we'll do it quarterly. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have more time. <laughs> probably monthly. Yeah, probably. So- Here's what I would do is like, okay, well, now we're getting close. So I'm planning now for 2020, and I'm going to be like, all right, well, here's how much money that we need from the overall portfolio. We need $100,000, $50,000, $10,000, whatever that dollar figure is. right? And then I'm going to look at my tax situation and say, okay, well, this is where we were. This is where we fell last year. So let's just try to keep our taxes neutral. 
right? So then that's going to help you tell you what, what pools you want to draw from. Here's how much money that you want to f- draw from tax deferred versus your Roth versus other assets. Then you can build your allocation appropriately and say, I need enough fixed assets or safe assets in my Roth or in my uh, non-retirement, in my retirement account. So if the market implodes, I still have that safety net to to not blow myself up tax-wise. Because what Alan and I have seen so many times is that when the market implodes and they don't have a tax strategy, then everything has got to come out from probably the wrong account. So now their accounts are down and they're pulling out more dollars, and right, more shares, and it's getting killed in tax. So you're getting... You know, hit from both sides. Right. So, something else I'll bring up, which is uh, maybe a little unrelated, but but kind of somewhat related, is when, when we talk about investing and having the right allocation, a lot of folks get confused about emergency cash fund. An emergency cash fund would be cash outside of your retirement account that is not part of your allocation. It's just completely separate. It's outside of your retirement Accounts strategy. Correct. It's, yeah, it's it's in, it's in just a normal bank account or savings account, and and the the purpose of that is for just for that for emergencies. It's not to be used for for vacations or things like that. It's for emergencies. But that you, you before you kind of come up with your assets that you want to allocate into whatever allocation you want, make sure you have appropriate level of emergency cash. And that should be maybe six months of living expenses, maybe a year. It's it's, it's a little bit of um, personal choice. Some people want to have more. It depends upon the safety of your income. Those that have less uh, regular or safe income might want to have a higher emergency fund. So you do that first. And that's so that's your cash outside of retirement. And then everything else you invest like we're talking about, so that you want to have a certain amount of stocks and bonds. And then you got to look at whether you got the Roth, the, the non-retirement, the retirement, which asset classes go into which pool to make the make make the best tax efficient investing. Yeah. Kind of there's a lot to it, huh? There is, it turns out. We probably could do another segment. <laughs> we really haven't got to the question. <laughs> The, the, the question that well I guess we sort of did at least my my opinion is if you if you have the ability to change it's to sell out of an asset class that's higher and it's in the right tax pool I'll, I'll, I'll sort of qualify it with that then go ahead and sell that asset class because you're getting a distribution no but if he needs more then where does he go well then then it's then it's a little more complicated right because because you're if you sell one asset class, not, nothing is going to be perfectly in balance at any time. So there'd be certain asset classes that are more likely to rebalance than others. And if there just isn't, like like let's say everything's in balance, like perfect storm, right? How, where do you get the money from? And so in that case, it, to me, it doesn't matter as much. But you, then you're going to have to rebalance if you want to stay in perfect harmony. Whatever you sell out of, you're going to need to buy back. Right? So would you take it equally? Out of each asset class that you own, no, because the trading costs would yeah, probably too, kill you. Too expensive. So when we talk about keeping things in balance, it's perfect balance is is not realistic. You want to get as close to perfect as possible without creating too many trades. There are ten key principles that can improve your odds of investing success. Find out what they are. Download the white paper from the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. It's called Pursuing a Better Investment Experience. It's free, and it'll give you the direction you need so that you are properly allocated when it's time to start withdrawing from your portfolio in retirement. Download the Pursuing a Better Investment Experience white paper from the show notes for today's podcast episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now we've got one more email question for the day. Linda from Kansas. I would like to ask regarding Roth conversion. I will be 70 years old 
and would like to convert money from IRA to Roth without incurring the 3.8% Medicare surcharge. What is the total amount that can be on line 43 so I won't incur the surcharge? Thanks for your advice. I appreciate your help. Okay, uh, let me set this up for you, Al. Okay. A couple of things. So Linda from Kansas is talking about a Roth conversion. Roth conversion is taking money from a retirement account, IRA, 401k, 403b, TSP, whatever you got, um, and then converting it into a Roth IRA. And the reason why individuals would want to look at that strategy is that if the money's in the Roth, then those dollars will forever grow tax-free. You do pay tax on the conversion. So if I convert $10,000 from my IRA to a Roth IRA, then $10,000 shows up on my tax return as taxable income. I pay tax on that. There is no 10% penalty if you're under 59 and a half. But I can do the conversion. I pay the tax. Now I have $10,000 in the Roth. That $10,000 grows to $20,000. It doubles in the next 10 years. I pull the twenty grand out. I pay zero tax whatsoever. So I'm hedging in a sense of saying, let me take the money out. I gladly pay the little bit of tax now to have all future growth of those dollars forever grow tax-free. So Linda's been thinking about doing a conversion. And so then she's getting a little smart with us here, Alan. She's like, Medicare surtax. Right. So she doesn't want to convert too much because then she's got to pay additional taxes. So I like how she says line 43. So it's line 10 now, Linda. Yeah. Your taxable income is what she's referring to there. So line 43 was taxable income on the old return uh, because that tells you what tax bracket that you're in. Uh, but now the Medicare surcharge, uh, uh, the additional 3.8%, um, you would want to look at a different number probably entirely. Uh, that's correct. It's so, adjusted gross. Yes, that's right. So it's uh, another name for that is the net investment income tax. And, and it happens at adjusted gross incomes when you're single above $200,000 married $250,000. So that those are your thresholds. And if you're above that, then any passive type income, there's an extra tax on top of your regular tax, 3.8%. It's interest, dividends, capital gains, rental income, things of that sort. So those are the thresholds. Right now, under the new tax return, it's line seven. So line seven is the, is the, uh, the line to look at if you're below $200,000. So in other words, let's just say Linda's income is normally 80,000 just to throw out a number. Okay? So then she could do a $120,000 Roth conversion if she was single and and be at $200,000 and not have to pay any net investment income tax. On the other hand, if her income is only pension and social security, there is no net she investment. She would never income. pay it. It was what that, I was going to say. That's right. It's only on interest, dividends, capital gains, rental income. So you have to look at the character of your income to know whether this is even a problem or not. So Linda to say it a different way, is that, and we get this question often, is that, well, this other three point, they hear the net investment income tax or the 3.8 surtax or surcharge or whatever you want to call it, is that, oh, am I going to be affected by that? Well, you have to have a lot of income, and you have to have a lot of income that is generated by investment. Correct. So if you have a lot of income via wages, don't worry about it. If you have a lot of income with Pensions, don't worry about it. If you're pulling a lot of money out of your retirement accounts, you don't have to worry about it. But if you are selling 
um, let's say, a highly appreciated asset that all of a sudden will kick you up, then you have to worry about it. If you have stock, dividends, interest, things like that, then that's where you have to start thinking about this 3.8 surtax. Um, or if you have a multi-million dollar portfolio that's just kicking out a ton of income from the portfolio, then yes, you want to th- be concerned with it. Uh, but in other cases, we don't really see this 3.8% surtax or surcharge um, affect a lot of individuals um, just because most of their assets are in a retirement account, right? And so when they take, or if they sell like a, a, a piece of property or their business, yeah. So in that in that particular case, when it's a when it's a property, they'd have to pay the three point eight percent on. When they sell their own business that they're actively involved in, that's not considered passive, and most accountants would then consider the three point eight percent tax would not apply. One one thing to 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 sort of kind of augment what you said about salary, that, that there actually is a surtax there. It's 0.9%. So if your salary is over $200,000, then you could have an extra 0.9% on top of that. And if you're over a million, it's something? Well, that's that's only California. California. <laughs> I bet you have to pay that, Big Al. Uh, not quite. <laughs> you do. Oh, yeah. Uh, at any rate, I, I want to just sort of go maybe one other little direction, just in case she's thinking of something else. Because the higher your income, the higher your Medicare premiums are. Okay, so, yeah, so good it's point. Not, not the question she asked, but it could be what she's thinking. Because when you are single, and once you make, uh, when your adjusted gross income is above $85,000, this was back in 2017, because they do a two-year look back. So for 2019, they look at, so $85,000 or less, you're paying the lowest premium, which right now is about $135 per month. Once you go above that, between $85,000 and $107,000, it's $189,000. bucks. Yeah, $189, bucks. yeah, thank you. And then uh, above $500,000 of income, that's the highest level, it's about four. $460 per month. When you are uh, married, it's the, the lowest bracket is $170,000 of income or below. So sometimes when people do Roth conversions, they get a little bit tripped up in that as well. Right. Their Medicare premiums were paying $150 bucks roughly, yeah. and then now they're paying $400 a month. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, how the, what, did, what happened? Well, yeah. well, you did a giant Roth conversion, and then that affected your Medicare premiums. Yeah. And, and we're going to say, I mean, don't you should still consider Roth conversions. We still think it makes a lot of sense, but just consider this an extra cost. Yeah, it's only a one-year cost, and so if you're doing a Roth conversion right now, 2019, it could affect your Medicare premiums in 2021. Yeah, you just want to look at everything how, of how every transaction strategy is going to affect your overall bottom line. Right now, because most people like they'll listen to this show for like 10 minutes if we're lucky. <laughs> that's being generous. <laughs> then they'll hear one thing, and then they'll be like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Then they do it to themselves, and then they blow themselves up, and then we get these weird yeah. emails of your, saying- Your strategy doesn't work very well. Yeah, yeah, or hey, I'm getting these letters from the IRS because I thought I did a conversion, but I took a distribution, and then the 60-day rollover, am I still qualified? I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, no, you kind of hurt yourself there. So uh, just be careful, you know? If if you if you got it dialed, God bless you. I mean that's why we do this show. We want to help those that are really dialed into their overall situation. Try to give them some nuggets to chew on. Uh, but others, we want to make sure that you are aware that there's strategies out there that could really enhance your overall wealth long term. 
Um, save money in taxes, grow your wealth, pass it to the next generation. And then if you need help, you know, we, we, li- we live in such a do-it-yourself environment um, where a lot of times you just kind of break stuff versus, you know, fixing it the right way. So I would seek advice from any qualified advisor. Like my closet, for instance. Yes. I got a project and it's like I broke um, part of my closet. Uh, and don't ask me how I did it. <laughs> Was that on a Saturday night? <laughs> no. <laughs> and so I have all these drawers and stuff like that within my closet. Okay. And then I snapped one of the drawers, and then the things came off the rails. And oh my god, I tried to put that thing back together. Right. It's like Humpty Dumpty. Oh, man. that thing. That's those are complicated. <laughs> you know, that thing ain't coming back. Right. Uh, so now I got to hire someone. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just to follow up on your point, I think that's it's a good one, which is if you hear tips from us or anybody, then don't don't take that as gospel. Take that as an idea to research and get more information so you can do it properly. Right. It's like we hear, oh, I love Roth conversions. It's like, well, that doesn't make any sense for you. Right. <laughs> Even though a lot of you think that that's all Ellen and I talk about. Yeah, in fact, I, I just had someone call me Mr. Roth at, at my church. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Show's called Your Money or Wealth. Special thanks to Dr. Allison Schrager for coming on YMYW Today. Check the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com for the link to her book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, and to share this great interview and to subscribe to the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast and newsletter for free. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner, just click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision.